Hello and welcome to At The Source. I'm Alex and this is Karis. This is a podcast about food stories. We love talking about food and eating it. And now we're on a mission to record and share interesting food stories from people all over the UK and beyond. Join us as we explore food in all its glory. Welcome to At The Source. We're back at Abergavenny Food Festival this weekend and are lucky enough to be sat here with the brilliant Asma Khan, who we're sure many of you will be familiar with already. Asma moved to the UK from Calcutta in 1991, not knowing what to expect, and after teaching herself to cook, she started a supper club, which led to her opening her now critically acclaimed restaurant, Darjeeling Express. She's a well-known face on the British food scene a cookbook author, and last year was voted Female Entrepreneur of the Year at the Asian Restaurant Awards and Entrepreneur of the Year at the Asian Women of the Year Awards. We knew about Asma, of course, but really got to understand a little of her food story after watching her on the Netflix show Chef's Table. If you've never seen this series, we highly recommend it for the beautiful cinematography and wonderful food stories from around the world. Anyway, enough of me rambling on. We're very excited to welcome you to the podcast, Asma. Thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule to join us today. The first question is your first memory of food. My first memory of food was having paratha. Um on a balcony in I must have been like maybe less than three years old must have been two and a half and watching the sugar uh, melt so it was hot paratha with ghee and uh, my you know the servants had put sprinkled sugar on top but they told me and I remember being that that I was waiting for the sugar to melt before I could eat it because it would be too hot it would be too hot also I was I was told I had to wait the sugar was going to melt and that was the first thing I remember that Watching the the and and you know, sugar cube, you know, it's not like cube, but it's it's much bigger than the grains that you get granulated sugar in this country. So it was kind of solid pieces of sugar, and I was watching it melt. I remember that so clearly. Three years old as well. That's quite young, actually. Yeah, because I, I I that was the house we stayed in before we got transferred. That's how I know how old I was. Otherwise, I wouldn't have remembered. But it was just before my brother was born. It was before we moved from Calcutta, and I remember the balcony. I remember the balcony so well, sitting on the balcony, waiting for the sugar to melt. That's a really lovely first memory. <laughs> I, I've, I've got so many questions about your background, um, but the thing is we've got a short period of time. We want to try and get it as much as we can. <laughs> so you've, you've lived in the UK for a while now, yes. and you sort of thought, I'm never going to leave India. And then you had to because I assume that's where your arranged yes. marriage was, you know, sending you. What was that period in your life like when you sort of thought, well, now I'm leaving everything behind to this new thing? I was first feelings and the strongest feelings were of relief because I knew that my mother, especially and my parents, were worrying about getting me married because the obvious suspects who I could have got married were not going to marry me. So they were concerned about, you know, who I'd marry and what would happen to me and the fact that I was now going to college and having a job and honor of the family. So mm. it was all these things that was, it was very much new ground for them because the standard thing that my mother's family, especially at 18, the girls got married off. So they never went to university. They never had, you know, this opportunity that they may have a night out or go out partying or any of these things. So I was in this kind of really strange position where I was the first who was doing all of that. I went to college. I got a job because I was not, they could not find someone 
that I could marry. So I think the main thing was I was just so happy for my mother that I was getting married and there was some guy who was going to marry me. And then, you know, if you've not been to an Indian wedding, this may not make sense to you, but it is absolute manic. It is seven days of chaos of constantly changing your clothes, singing and dancing and excessive amounts of food. Because I helped my mother with her food business and my mother was doing the food herself, it wasn't catered. I really helped a lot in organizing my wedding uh, clothes and my the food and trying to support the servants, trying to get them and the, all the cooks who, you know, were really overwhelmed by having to arrange my, you know, my all the wedding uh, occasions. So I didn't have time to think about, you know, where I was going or what I was doing. I now look back and think that I didn't even open the trousseau box, the suitcases of clothes my mother gave me. Because this was the clothes she'd collected from the time that I was born. So very hand embroidered, you know, you, uh, mm. you know, very much like the Greece tradition, Greek tradition, people collect for years for their daughter because when she gets married, you need to give substantial trousseau. Mm. And I had 101 outfits that my mother had collected over the years, wow. saris, uh, shalwar kameez, uh, all in cotton and silk and no warm clothes. And that's the suitcases I took. <laughs> when I when I went to Cambridge, very very helpful because I guess when they're putting all these together, they don't really think about where is my daughter going to go. It's not because the presumption things. always was that I'd stay in India, that I'd marry someone from the clan, and I'd stay there. And I had beautiful, you know, hand embroidered uh, leather shoes that matched the embroidery on my outfit, my Indian outfit, and I walked in. Cambridge in January in there <laughs> and then this it got wet and I remember the you know I could literally hear the 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 person who made my shoes telling me when you wear these shoes you're going to look like a princess and there I was in this freezing cold sludging through the Cambridge Cambridge street. streets uh, with these shoes that were now falling apart because they were wet they were never meant to be you know for, for me to walk in the cold uh, no how old were you at this time? I was 21. 21. So, I mean, even though you said before, you know, you usually get married off at 18, 21 doesn't seem that much older. I was actually, no, I think I was 22. I was 21 with my, you know, all of this was happening. Mm. But I was 22 when I came to Cambridge. And I think that, no, but in my family tradition, you get married at 18. And, you know, more than that, you know, your wedding is almost like arranged when you're very young because you know who you're marrying. Because mm. uh, it's some, you know, distant relative who your wedding is fixed with. So bringing it back to food, which is obviously why we're all here. Um, so you arrived in Cambridge in the January. Um, what what food did you miss most when you first arrived? Is Was there kind of one dish in particular that would remind you of home? I, I really missed pulao. I missed really well-made rice because the first day I came my, to Cambridge, my husband cooked rice for me in a rice cooker it was so sticky you could glue me on the ceiling how that's with that sticky rice and you know i come from a land of beautiful uh basmati and you know we always ate really good rice you know we spent a lot on making sure the rice was good so mm. you know my mother would always cut back on other things but never on the quality of rice so i was a bit spoiled i was so i just missed you know really fragrant beautiful grains that were separate. Yeah, I missed rice. And in um, in the 90s, how easy was it for you to get the kind of in 
the ingredients that you needed to make authentic food from home? Well, for the first year, I didn't know how to cook anything. So I I didn't even know. I would go to the shops just to, out of curiosity, uh, which was the other end of town in Cambridge. Um, and it was extremely hard. And it was my second year in Cambridge that I was staying there where, you know, no one had mobile phones. But someone came and knocked on my door and told me that they have got fresh ginger in Sainsbury's. There was this crowd of students standing around that box, holding the ginger <laughs> against their noses and hugging it because that was so huge. Garlic you couldn't get, but you got fresh ginger. And there was this big sign saying exotic vegetable. Oh, my goodness. And we were just dying in excitement that you could get fresh ginger. It was incredibly difficult, especially mm. in Cambridge, um, because, you know, you had to cycle out of what was the, you know, gown part of town into the town, which was quite far. And I, yeah, it was very difficult. Very, very difficult. I think we don't realise how lucky we are now, especially Karis and I live in Bristol, which is kind of second to London in being able to get any cuisine, any ingredients. And um, we're, we're so lucky these days that we just have all of that without thinking. You know, I know it was in, you couldn't get anything and it was very hard to get masalas, very hard to get spices. I had to come into London uh, from Cambridge and then go to uh, Wembley and Thank God there was this incredible shop, uh, which is still there, near Houston on Drummond Street, called the Spice Shop, which had all these spices. And I would just, just stand there and just look at them because I could not afford to buy everything and take it back, mm. you know, because I had to go back on, on, on the train. But I was just feel, I would just touch the spices and just to feel incredible because you couldn't get it anywhere. Mm. So what was your husband cooking, aside from really bad rice? <laughs> he was cooking a, a single standard chicken curry, his standard chicken curry, which was not good. <laughs> it was actually really bad. And he was really a bad cook. But because it was an arranged marriage, I was very awkward saying anything to him. I was scared that if I said something about his cooking, he might send me home. Or he might get angry. And I was with a stranger. Mm. So I was so scared of him. I didn't dare tell him that his food was really bad. How long did it take before you said, okay, I can't do this anymore? I have never said it to him, actually. Till He, he saw it in print first. I was going to say, please don't let him no, listen to this. No, no, he saw it in print first, years later. It's a complicated thing, you know. With arranged marriages, you know, it it sets the... For people who who can't understand how this relationship is. It's a relationship of, you know, where you move in with a stranger mm. and you slowly, slowly start getting to know each other. Uh, the fact that he was a bad cook was established. <laughs> but I just thought that, you know, instead of trying to take him on and telling him that he's a really bad cook, I didn't think he could improve. That I realized that, you know, he has, <laughs> doesn't have any of the skills. I watched him cook and I'm thinking, oh no, this guy is not going to make any other dish. So then I figured out that I had to do it. I had to learn how to cook. And then I slowly started cooking and he never made the chicken curry again, ever, ever. At what point did you go back to India and you, because you cooked with your aunts. Yeah. And that I think was a big part of, yes. you know, bringing all those skills together for you. What, how did you feel when you were there and you were sort of working with them and picking up all of their knowledge that they'd gathered together over the years? I 
when I went back, I, t- I explained to my mother that it was this was not just the simple thing that, oh, you've got to teach me a couple of recipes. No, I needed to know every dish that I loved. I needed to be so immersed in my food and in the spices and in the aromas. It was my way home. And my mother understood that. Mm. So I just went to every aunt and, you know, to all my cousins, to the cooks and told them, these are the dishes I need to learn how to cook. I was quite surprised how fast I learned it. I think I actually did know how to cook, just that I'd never done it because I spent so much time in the kitchen. Mm. I actually watched it being cooked endless numbers of time and tasted it at different stages, you know, for salt and for seasoning and other things and spices and chilies that I, you know, picked up everything. So it's not that I was like, you know, super genius. I just, yeah, I had obviously knew how to cook. So why did you think when you got, because when you said at the beginning, when we started talking that you helped your mother with her, with her business, why did you feel like you couldn't cook? Because I know that a lot of people, they just go, I'll just chuck this in a pan and see what happens. Why did you feel like you couldn't? This is about confidence as well. Yeah. You know, it's your, it, you know, you, you were, a, you could cook or you could not cook. So if you're in the not cook camp, then you stay in that camp. You're, you're a non-cooking person. That's interesting. And uh, so in my family, people cooked and some people didn't cook. And that they've stayed in that separate groups. So, yeah, I was a not cooking, troublemaking, tomboy. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, there was no way anyone was going to take me seriously. Maybe I was also trying to, uh, you know, I felt that it was a very uh, feminine thing to do is to cook. And because I was so desperately trying to be a tomboy, I didn't even bother learning. I'm not sure why I never learned. But then also, you know, I had a house with like, 18 cooks mm. and my mother cooked and why would I learn to cook mm. yeah, I mean and India is not you know this is not fun it's full of mosquitoes and flies and it's so hot it is so humid it's like a sauna you don't want to go into a kitchen there's no fan in the kitchen because you know the masalas fly everywhere I ran away from Australia I have some inkling and can totally appreciate so it's that. like steaming it's hot and you know why are you going to do this to yourself so I never learned how to cook I like the fact that you, you went back to India, you, you kind of took all this amazing knowledge on and brought it back, and then you started a supper club from your house, but without your husband knowing? Or you, yeah. I think I heard on the Honey & Co podcast that you, you would do it when he was out. Yeah, I lied to him. I lied to him by not just forgetting to tell him every time he was leaving. <laughs> I like it's not that. lying, it's just <laughs> admitting the truth. Yeah, so I never told him and I kept it, you know. I did it when he travelled quite a lot. The moment he told me, I'm going so-and-so, I would just put the supper clubs up online and they sold out. And we were all just waiting for him to leave. The moment he left, it was, you know, <laughs> get out all the furniture, move this, move that, get set for the supper clubs. The house looked suspiciously clean every time he came back. He did comment on a couple of times that oh, it looks really clean and scrubbed. <laughs> What's been happening yeah, here? <laughs> but it, the kids, surprisingly, never told him. How old were they at this point? Uh, so they were around, you know, 14 and, and 9. Okay, so they, they yeah. That's so they, really so good. they never they never told him, but they hated it, and then eventually they complained as well. And once they complained, they com- you know the story came out because they told my father, my father told Mushtaq, and then you know oh, I could okay. not lie anymore. And I was also very upset because I realized that you know I had also never considered them my kids. Mm. I just overruled. I just presumed I could impose my views on them, the way it, it's done for all of us. Our families impose what is right, mm. what is wrong, what is shameful, what is not. And I'd done that to my own kids. I felt very embarrassed uh, that I'd done it. So I had to stop. I stopped immediately. When you did your first supper club, 
you know, we were talking to some people earlier and it's that whole idea of cooking or writing or anything creative. You put that in front of someone else and you wait for them to give feedback. Yeah. That's quite nerve wracking. Yeah. That first supper club that you had, what, what, what was that like sort of waiting for either completely empty plates or as you said this morning, you know, half a chicken curry left on the plate how was that for you when you were waiting in the kitchen going what's happening out there (laughs) the thing is that i i was so scared about this my first 10 supper clubs were for a charity i kept no money okay so i hedged my bets on that that even if they disliked it and they were not happy so i wouldn't put myself through this trauma of whether or not they were happy i knew that because it's a good cause they'll be fine because the entire money was going to charity. I was keeping nothing. So I did that. I did that because I was too scared to to put my own food on, on this test and see whether they liked it or not. But the response was so positive. I still did uh, supper clubs for charities for a while. Also, the other reason I did it is because, you know, I come from a tradition where, you know, you must start everything auspiciously. Mm-hmm. And I felt that, you know, the charities I was working for, they were the hunger charities that were feeding malnourished children, critically ill children around the world, especially in developing countries, in my country, on my soil. Mm. And I felt that, you know, if before I feed the rich, I must feed the poor and I must feed the hungry because that is part of my faith that, you know, you must feed the hungry first. You know, that is how you will get successful as a mm-hmm. food business you start off on the right note. Mm. And this is why I also did charity, you know, supper clubs, fundraising for hunger charities, because uh, to save myself, this trauma that people would hate my food. But also I felt that this was a good way to start something. I There's a lot of things in this that I think so many people, and this is why I think people get you so much, is because they feel the same way. They feel that that low self-esteem that confidence sort of you know you've got to build that yourself you can't expect anyone else to build that for you how long did it take you before you went you know what actually i'm not that bad it took at least it took the 12 supper clubs that i did for different charities but i already was sure because now the the charity supper clubs became heavily oversubscribed there were waiting lists where people were weeping and crying saying you know I promised my partner I was going to bring him this time. And, you know, I, he's, he's so disappointed. So that feedback from people who were coming to a charity supper club, but were like so desperate to mm. come back, it was magical. And, you know, I am so grateful. I'm just doing the wedding of one of these girls who would turn up for all these supper clubs. Yeah, and I yeah. told her I was closing the restaurant on Saturday. There's no minimum spend. I'll just do the supper club food. That she came to for my... That's wonderful. And, Such a and, nice... And, and, and she was like, you know, she was weeping. And she was saying, you know, I can't even begin to imagine the financial loss of closing on a Saturday night and just to host a supper club for my family. And I told her, you have no idea. Your words of kindness, what they did to me. They built me. I am, I stand on, I stand on shoulders of women like you. You lifted me up at that time when I was nothing. Now I am something. I can take the financial hit. I can close my restaurant on a Saturday to celebrate your wedding, giving you the same food that you ate at my home 
because you took the chance not knowing who i was mm. and then mm. getting all your friends and your partners and you know everyone who you worked with to my support i'll never forget you know who stood by me in my early days mainly just women of all cultures all backgrounds all ages who felt an instinct that this was something that was happening that was good if you could give yourself a label what would it be so you know people are feminists or you know revivalists of you know this this and this and this what what would you give yourself a label as um probably disruptor oh i like it that is a good one i think i i dis- i'm disrupted what people think now taking my roots from my east to my west i've been a disruptor from the east to the west both so i've shaken what is the norms in my eastern tradition in my muslim tradition as an immigrant but then i'm also shaking things as a a londoner as a british citizen uh, as a woman who's lived in this country for 28 years much longer than i've lived in india mm. and i i feel that you know i you know i will not let anyone put me in a box you know you will not tell me who i am every day i'm someone else i will tell you who i am because this is where my power has come from the fact that i know exactly where i'm going and you do not tell me which paths open for me and if the path is close for me i'll create it can i ask there's a misconception that in in islam you know women are not powerful people they are you know they're second class citizens and you know in some countries i think that is very much the yeah. case but clearly not in 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 your family no i think that you know the problem is that in uh in many countries women have got second class status and they happen to be islamic countries that is because they are deeply patriarchal societies yeah. agricultural based or very much dependent on a, you know nomadic existence they happen to have hit oil but their attitudes have not changed they just now have a lot of money but they still have this nomadic tradition which did require the women to play a certain role because there was no food mm. and there was no water so these are just very unhelpful situations for islamic women to be in mm. where a lot too many islamic women are in, in societies where the society is deeply patriarchal mm. and that has not been challenged and the forms of of power come down from male inheritance of land mm. of property so these are all deeply unhelpful uh i i i take issue with a lot of people who are confused about women who wear hijabs and burqas and say oh this is like you know this is oppression i will never wear one but i will defend to my last breath someone's right to wear it because i think every woman should be allowed to do whatever she wants Absolutely. if as long as it's her decision so i i i don't see myself as very different from a lot of islamic women i just had an opportunity to get the spotlight on myself and you've used it so incredibly well so this is the thing that you know many women feel like the way i do many women are like me it's my kismat and my destiny that i got a chance to get on stage and i have this moment and i'm trying to be the voice of the voiceless including all these women behind parda wailed and also wearing hijabs because i think that you know i i i see myself in all these women from the very liberal liberated women to the ones who are struggling because they must understand that you know there is a way out L- look at me i formed a 
collective of women. I used women to push myself harder and faster and higher. The women pushed each other up. And this is how we've got where we are. And it's not just my victory. You know, like in cricket, where you can go out and hit a century, but, you know, your entire team, if they collapse, you lose. Mm-hmm. I don't want to lose. I will win. And, you know, this is my second innings. And, you know, I over, and, you know, another cricketing thing, but, you know, I will hit every ball out of the park because this is my last chance to bat. I'm not going to go away being silent. So I will speak for women of every culture because in their struggle, I see my struggle. In their victory is my victory. It's so beautifully put. I just, it is. I think every person we've spoken to today and said, oh my goodness, we're interviewing Asma Khan. They, they, <laughs> they, just, she's just so... She's just so eloquent and she just... Absolutely. Like, yeah. I've got I've had goosebumps for most of this interview, honestly. Sorry. I, I'd i like to ask a question now. Sorry. Yes. <laughs> you are here. Um, okay. So your restaurant, Darjeeling Express, is um, has a kitchen and front of house, I believe, which is entirely staffed by women. Made of that collective. Yeah. Made of that collective, exactly. So um, with a background in law and an interest in politics, I read that you see food as an excuse to talk about and explore politics. Yeah. So is this partly why you made the decision to, to run the restaurant that way? No, we do have. We do have the occasional um, men we hire in front of house, on mm. the kitchen. And uh, it's... It's these women who come to me. I see it in their eyes. There's that hunger to succeed. So I, I, I think they, they basically hire themselves. I never consciously went out to hire only women. And I never say this even when people ask me about the all-female kitchen. It seemed like the most natural thing for me. Mm. These are women who would come to me. They were immigrants. They went through the same journey as me. Mm-hmm. And in coming from a country like India, where someone with my background and my royal heritage would probably never have even met these women. You know, they were cleaners in, in hospitals, nannies, and, you know, working in care homes. Uh, I wouldn't have sat down and had a meal with them. But I did in London. And this is what makes London so beautiful as a city. Mm. And this country, that under the umbrella of this country, you we've been able to create an empire, effectively, of women. Uh, where we will start this whole process, mm-hmm. the ripples of a collective of South Asian women who are going to use food to empower and break all the chains in which we have found ourselves tied. Some of these chains we have imposed ourselves. Mm-hmm. This is to do with our lack of confidence, our feeling that no one else has done it. What will everyone else think? Oh, I'm, I am 50 now, and believe me, it doesn't matter. I am right now at the most powerful I'll ever be in my life. I was not powerful in my 20s and 30s when it mattered to me what people thought, where I was trying to fit in with a norm that was acceptable to everybody. And I wasted those years of my life. But in some ways as well, I learned something really critical because I think that every time now I hit a hurdle and every time I lose, I stand up because I feel, I sense there's a woman standing behind me for whom I've hurt. I've removed that hurdle. Mm. She's not going to fall. So it's that feeling now that you know that change is happening. And I can see this whole army of people coming in. We will just be able to occupy the spaces that have excluded us. Yeah. And it's a very positive feeling. 
And this I could not have done at a time when I felt I needed to fit in. Now, as I call myself a disruptor, I am a disruptor. I, I'm going there to change and shake the system because I want people to know you have to look into my eyes. Do not just look at the color of my skin. Mm. Do not listen to my accent and my Muslim name and then bracket me mm. in some box where you have all your prejudices. Mm. I will not let you do that because you need to now be on my table, eat my food, look into my eyes and learn to honor me and my women. I think food can do that too. Yes. It can really bring everybody back to a basic Absolutely. place. Absolutely. And that's something that we found doing this podcast is that everyone we've spoken to, so many different people, it's all about the kind of the gravity, I guess, of just sharing a good meal. No, and the thing is, you know, in, in, you have 21 verses in uh, the Bible on breaking bread. Why is it so important? You know, you have it in the Torah, you've got it in the Quran, you've got it in all the ancient texts where they talk about sharing a meal. You know, once you and I have eaten something together, next time you see someone who looks like me, you won't flinch. You'll remember that meal because you'll remember a conversation. You'll, you will sense my voice. Because you would have remembered a shared experience. You will, you will probably not then flinch and move away from that person. You might even look at that person in the eye. Mm. It's so important that people of different cultures eat together, mm. talk about nothing, but just share that meal. And in that nothingness and silence, all those barriers and the prejudices come down. Whilst we're talking about the kind of the barriers and the prejudices, um, I know that some of the proceeds from Darjeeling Express go to the Second Daughters Fund. Yes. Um, and you yourself are a second daughter. Yes, I am. So um, can you tell our listeners a little bit about what that means um, and also uh, what the what the charity does with those funds? Um, and we will share the link to the GoFundMe page on, okay. on our website. So right now it's a, it's a not-for-profit because the Indian uh, government is not happy to, for it to be given a charity status because it shakes the... The disrupts. It disrupts. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. And I, I've, I've decided that I'm not going to go down this road and you know make their lives hell. Uh, so second daughters is a is something that you know no one has spoken about before publicly before I raised this thing about the horrors and the lamenting uh, that you know this the entire family goes into mourning when a girl is born. Mm. And not that I remember anyone telling me or oh, everybody cried when you were born. I don't remember. Mm. I knew. We all know. And now that I'm talking about it, so many women come and say, we sensed it, we knew it. I always wanted to know why. I also want to know why. You know, you never honored my birth. You never actually embraced me and made me feel I could conquer the world. But from those wounds that will never heal comes from me, inside me a fire to set the world alight. This is why I'm doing this. Because I think that, you know, the shame of not being a boy we all carry our whole life. Mm. And so many women I've met, and interestingly, across cultures, Mexican women from Mexican women, Colombian women, women from Venezuela who've come. A lot of Turkish women have been writing to me, mm. uh, Malaysian women. So all these societies that are patriarchal, 
talk about this whole thing of not being the preferred child mm. and feeling that they were, it was not convenient a burden to have had a girl and for you know it's so wrong at so many levels and you know ask i know lots of my friends who are desperate to have kids you know it's wrong at so many levels it's a life you know honor my life this is the one thing that you know human beings do they give life it's a privilege and an honor to have a child mm. but to leave that child scarred because of who they are is so wrong so we uh you know the money goes from all of us to the you know uh to the organizations that actually help us in india just celebrate the birth of a girl we can't step onto many people's feet and sensibilities about what we're doing so all we do is we send a huge box of sweets a huge box of fireworks someone will set it off and they distribute the sweets which are always done symbolically when a boy is born right but not for a girl but that's that's that little ceremony of sweets being distributed and the fireworks going off at least you know i could not say this to anyone when i was bullied and they hit me um and pushed me against the wall and told me you know everyone cried when you were born and you know you're such a burden and no one wanted you i couldn't say no you celebrated when my birth everybody ate sweets and those fireworks and my family celebrated i could not say that but at least some girl can say that and actually that could be the difference between those girls growing up to be strong independent women yeah or growing up very differently so because you know i can't go into families i cannot go and interfere i can yeah. actually can make her situation worse but in this one symbolic thing i'm hoping that women notice that this is interesting why aren't we doing for the girls patriarchy is terrible mm. and you know with the support of the matriarchs we are being crushed so you can't go in and you know change people's lives but i can quietly whisper in the ears of some by this that you know this is wrong this is wrong mm. honor her she deserves it and that must then also um kind of start a snowball effect with those girls then growing up and thinking yes i'm important i'm just as important as my brother i i've i had a celebration yes when i grow up i will make sure that this doesn't happen yeah and, and with my children it's it's a very small thing but you know this is how you start a wave mm. is the drops and the drops and the drops that you need to put into something till you are so big that you can then really make a change i'm still at the stage where i'm i'm a disruptor but one day in my lifetime i will see change that i'm convinced of so your husband is very much a silent partner when it comes to your business yeah. um despite giving you the money to kind of make that dream happen um you've mentioned before that he has a very different relationship to food um to the, re- the relationship that you have with food uh, but now that you're a successful restauranteur and cookbook author has that changed has that dynamic changed or is he still kind of determined to eat his chicken curry and stay behind the scenes well he's not cooking the chicken curry anymore thank god for that <laughs> no it hasn't changed you know nothing has changed in our relationship he he grew up in very traumatized times in a war zone his relationship with food was very functional and you know and he still gets extremely upset if he sees liver because there was a time when all they could get from shops was liver because there was no food and where was this where did he he grow? grew up in bangladesh just around the time of okay. the war so saw massive uh you know uh, lots of people being killed huge mm-hmm. disruption went into a country where then they were seen as enemies and 
stateless for a while. So all of these things, I think, deeply uh, affected his enjoyment of food and what he thinks food are, and left it a deep mark for him that you know that someone actually is so obsessed about food, he he doesn't see food as anything important in his life. Mm. Having lived and survived, you know, mm. with his house full of bullet holes, and everything that he owned, you know, was sunk. So he he has like his family lost everything. You know, the submarine just sunk their boat, the boat that was carrying their stuff. Mm. So I think all of that. So I I have to give him a pass on mm. this, because you know I cannot explain to him now. You know he's he's now at that age in life where you know it's unlikely that he's going to change. So he's happy to let me be and happy to let me fly, and that is I think a great strength because you know he's not interfering at all. Mm. So you know he's got a very bad. You know, and people all know about his bad chicken curry. But this is the first time actually telling, talking about his positives. His positives is like, you know, you do what you want in your life. I will let you succeed. And he gave me his entire life savings. And you know, there have been bad days. They've been have gone terribly wrong. He has never asked me or told me, or, or maybe you could have never given his opinion. But then, when I give him a dish, he also doesn't have an opinion on anything. Is it nice or bad? That's okay. <laughs> I know, but you know, it's just that he doesn't think these things are important. But he supports you in a very different way. But then, of course, you've got your community of women yes. who are giving you that 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 side, the emotional side. Yes. So actually, it sounds like quite a nice setup. Yeah, and he's you know he's just there, and he doesn't interfere in my. I'm very happy in this kind of situation where you know, I've been married for 28 years. I think he gave up on me very early in the marriage, <laughs> and has just let me be. And it's probably you know marginally relieved that you know I'm not hanging around the house cooking, so he not ushering secret yeah guests in the back door. <laughs> no, because he has like you know he just wants he's an academic he's very antisocial. He just likes students. He doesn't like people. He doesn't like food. He doesn't want to sit and have a, a long meal, and not as he definitely never wants to have a conversation about food. Mm. So it's just that it just shocks him. That I am so interested. Yeah. He was like, "Yeah, you had a very privileged upbringing, Asma. This really shows that that you can talk for biryani for an hour. You know, isn't there anything else that's so? He's very political, and for him, you know, there are lots of other things that I should be talking about in my life. Uh, but he doesn't interfere, and I'm happy for that. I'm relieved. I'm not sure it would have worked out very well if he had tried to interfere. Actually, in, no. Let's not ask how that would have ended. <laughs> <laughs> So we know that your husband's not super keen on food. What about your kids? My kids, one one is just like him, doesn't like food at all, and one kid is like me. It's so strange. We've produced two kids which are carbon copies of ourselves. So my younger kid is completely like Mushtaq, not at all interested in food, and he didn't grow up in a war zone, so I think there might be something genetic. <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, and and my older one is completely obsessed. You know, watches YouTube videos, has lots of opinions on how I should fuse this with that. Mostly, we end up fighting over all his bizarre ideas. I hate the breakfast that he cooks. What does he cook? Terrible things. <laughs> he he puts eggs with everything that he can get hold of. Really, I worry about him. My my older one is just obsessed about food. Do you think he's really excited that his mum is Asma Khan? I think he is. He should I, be. <laughs> I, I think he is, and he's he also is someone who. I notice uh, reads all my social media That's fantastic, and and comments it? on it and I, the first like on every post is my son. Oh, 
He's so proud of you. He is very proud of me, and you know, I. But he's. We don't talk about this so much, but he he keeps telling me that you know, uh, I I I feel that this is like the best education I've had is watching you. So that's the biggest thing he has said to me <laughs> that you know he I think he's learned he's learned how to fight and you know and 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 it's very unfortunate that I ended up having two boys and not a girl, but I also feel that this was my destiny because now every girl is my daughter. And he's going to go off and find a wife or a partner or whatever he wants. Yeah. And he's going to be, he's got those, those feelings and those, that understanding of women from you and and you're changing it from both sides almost. Yeah. And I think that is, you know, this is, this is change will happen. We cannot now live in oppression because, you know, it's, it just, because of social media, because of access to information that, women can have you cannot hold us down you you cannot that is a perfect ending and unfortunately we've run out of time thank you so much you're very welcome we hope you enjoyed our conversation with asma khan we definitely really only scratched the surface so we'll be sure to put some other links to other podcasts and interviews that asma has done in the past if you liked asma's story you'll probably like some of our other stories you can find those on our website at thesource.com or on whichever podcast platform you use We'd love for you to give out the source feedback so more people can find stories like Asma's. We're also chatting and sharing visuals on Twitter and Instagram, so come and talk to us. Until next time.